This is your morning wake-up call on Sports Country. Grab a cup of coffee and hang with us every weekday morning for the latest news, sports, and other things going on around the world and in your backyard. Now, here's your host, Gene Gums. Well, good morning, everybody. It is six minutes past nine o'clock here in Western North Carolina. Welcome to a Wednesday morning wake-up call on Sports Country Radio. December the 6th, 2023, as we uh, get closer and closer to Christmas, um, with shockwaves. Uh, through the uh, baseball world yesterday. <laughs> Maybe that's a little overdoing it. More shockwaves if you are a fan of the Boston Red Sox or the New York Yankees. The two teams make a trade yesterday. The Red Sox and the Yankees have only made seven trades in their history. So this is not insignificant. We'll talk about all that uh, coming up in a couple of minutes. Um, another shooting here in the United States, uh, in San Antonio and Austin, it is supposedly um, connected to the same person, believe it or not. And uh, six people killed, including a police officer. A uh, person's been apprehended, but uh, the beat goes on as far as gun violence here in the United States. And, you know, you just wonder, you know, are we ever going to do anything to fix this? It's just, you know, gun violence. It, Outside of a war zone, no country has the gun violence that the United States does, and and we just continue to just kind of shrug our shoulders. You know, there there are people that obviously uh, care deeply about it and are trying to do something, but um, the gun lobby is just too strong. And and I, you know, and we have so many people hung up on, oh, you're not going to take my guns, you know. I mean, but uh, at some point, I mean, aren't we going to do something? I mean, how many how many how many deaths is it going to take? Is it going to take the death of a, uh, you know, is it going to take something catastrophic like the death of a president from some whack job? Is that is that what it's going to take? You know, I mean, what 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 else do we need to see here in this country before we do anything? So anyway, uh, I don't want to get too deep into that, but uh, let's get to sports. And uh, before we get to that uh, big trade between the Red Sox and the Yankees last night. Um, and, and I apologize, by the way, for not being here yesterday. I've been, uh, I've been fighting some kind of a, uh, a bug for the last few days. Now, my wife was sick as a dog. I did not get that, but I've had some kind of stomach bug the last few days, and I just woke up feeling like crap, uh, yesterday. So I figured, uh, it was, discretion was a better part of valor, and I would take the day off and, uh, uh, just hope to feel better and and I do feel a little bit better this morning which is good cuz I got to take a trip up north uh on Friday heading back up to New England for a, a few days so uh I wanted to make sure I was good to go but we're here today we'll be here tomorrow Dan Zampano will join us tomorrow to talk NFL football uh but then I'll be gone Friday Monday Tuesday while I am on my trip um but I will be here tomorrow uh with Dan Zampano so um I want to start off talking this morning about a proposal that has been floated uh, by Charlie Baker 
the former uh, governor of Massachusetts, who is now the NCAA president. And um, he is talking about the possibility of creating a new tier in college athletics. And, and so in, it sounds like it's going to be more of a subdivision tier of Division I um, in that he is basically going to separate the Power Five conferences, the, um, uh, the Big Ten, the SEC, the Big 12, the ACC, right now the Pac-12, but that's going to go away because Pac-12 is basically going to disappear after this year. And what he's suggesting is the following is that that new tier would be required to pay at least half of their athletes at least $30,000 a year through a trust fund. Um, And it also allows them to offer unlimited educational benefits, uh, the name, image, and likeness thing with, with athletes, yada, yada, yada. I have railed on this program time after time after time about my distaste for the idea of paying college athletes. I'm still not a fan of the idea. Now, having said that, I'm not an idiot. I also see what's going on in this country as far as college athletics go, and I see that these kids are getting paid anyway. It's been going on for years, you know, but what they're trying to do is, I guess, it, in the long run, just legitimize this thing. You know, and, and one of the conference commissioners came out yesterday, uh, the Mid-American Conference Commissioner, uh, John Steinbrecher, came out and said, look, you know, this has been going on, you know, forever. That the power conferences have separated themselves financially. They already give more to their athletes than anybody else does. Um, so if, so basically we're just acknowledging what already exists and taking some of the pressure off of the NCAA and maybe some of the lawsuits that are, you know, being talked about and look, and here's the thing, it's not going to require that every school in these power conference, you know, these power five conferences do this, but they're going to have that option. Well, if you're in one of those Power Five conferences, and if you don't do that, you're not going to get recruits. At the end of the day, look if if uh, if Alabama is going to offer me thirty thousand dollars a year, but Georgia's not. Well, where am I going? Right. I mean, so you know, while it so while it may say you're not required to, how are you not going to do that? Right. How can't how can you not? And we, th- look, this is all driven by college football, right? There's no – this is complete, completely about college football. And, you know, while, I, while the idea of paying a college athlete kind of makes me nauseous, I have to acknowledge this is 2023 and I got to get with the program or, or get off the bus. Right. I mean, uh, so if you want to do that, go ahead. And here's the, you know, look, here's the deal. I worked in Division One college athletics for a long time. But I worked at a mid-major school. I worked at a school where the entire athletic budget for the year 
at you know was probably around between somewhere between five and ten million dollars a year. That's it. We have Power Five conferences that are spending upwards of two hundred and fifty million dollars a year. Right, I mean that's so the the disparity between the haves and have-nots is great. Now, what it doesn't say is, does that mean that what it means for college football, really? End of the day, okay. What it means for college football is, is if you're not in one of those Power Five conferences, you might as well, uh, if you are. And right now, with the with the bowl situation the way it is, and going to twelve teams next year, there's going to be a slot for a team that is outside the Power Five conferences. But outside of that, if you are a school like Sacred Heart University, where I used to work, uh, Liberty, James Madison, um, Appalachian State, you name it, small schools like that, you know that that would still in many ways, like for basketball, would be considered a mid-major school, right? And But, you know, they, they like to play with the big boys, and every now and then they pull an upset. Appalachian State's done that several times. Liberty ran through their season undefeated this year. But at the end of the day, and, and this isn't to take anything away from Liberty. Uh, you know, Dan Zapano, if you're listening, and we, <laughs> we can talk about this, but if you're listening, this isn't to take anything away from what Liberty has done. It's great. But I mean, I'm here to tell you, and I was impressed by Liberty's offense. What they do, the scheme that they run on offense is impressive. And it's going to be a challenge for Oregon in the Fiesta Bowl to stop them. But Oregon's going to win that game, and they're going to win it easily. And I'm, I'm sure I'm probably, you know, I'm, we, we could talk about that at another time. But at the end of the day, a, a non-Power 5 conference is going to have an opportunity to play in the college football playoffs going forward. But by and large, if you are those schools, you just might as well say to yourself, and, and, we, and you have to be satisfied with this is what we are and this is what we're going to be and let's just move on. And, we, and so we can stop all the, wah, 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 why, you know, we're, you know, uh, we're, you know, undefeated and how come we're not ranked in the top 10? Because at the end of the day, it's not a level playing field. It's never been a level, level playing field. It's not going to be a level playing field. Liberty does not have the resources to do what Georgia or Alabama or uh, North Carolina or whoever, Florida State, whoever you want to pick. They don't have, Michigan, they don't have those kind of resources. They're never going to have those kind of resources. So at the end of the day, if we're just going to acknowledge what the fact is right now, I'm okay with that. But I believe that this is really only going to make a difference for football you can make a case that it could make some difference about basketball but I don't think it really will you know it may for a couple of recruits here and there and by the way you know I mean I I have to think that they're gonna have to fine-tune this like let's say let's say Sacred Heart finds this great recruit and they want to uh, 
and, and they want to go ahead and, and, and get this kid, and, and they're, they're going to say, well, we'll give you the thirty grand that somebody else would give you. There's got to be some ability for the smaller schools to do that. <laughs> Dan Zapano is listening to the show. <laughs> Hi, Dan. Uh, you know, and he says, how dare I talk crap about the play? I'm not talking crap. Look, I what they have done, what James Madison has done, has been impressive. Okay? It has. And Dan tells me that the Liberty Athletic Department uh, uh, athletic budget is $50 million a year. Great. That's great. But here's the here's the fact. Uh, uh, Charlie Baker, when he sent this letter out to all the D1 schools uh, Tuesday, said that there are 59 schools that spend $100 million, or over $100 million, 59 that spend over $100 million. And there are 32 that spend over $50 million. So that's 91 of 350 Division I schools, 91 of 350 Division I schools spend more than $50 million. And 59 of those spend more than 100. So Liberty doesn't even – so if, if their budget's 50 mil, maybe they're over, maybe they're a little under, whatever. But if they're, they're not in the top 91. So – if that's the case, you know, they're one of the have-nots at the end of the day. $50 million is a lot of money. Don't get me wrong. But it's not Michigan, Georgia, Alabama, Florida State, whatever. You know, and, of course, you talk about that, and the majority of the schools that are in these Power Five conferences, the majority of them, not all, but the majority of them are state schools. And they're going to have the ability uh, to access more funds. So, you know, I'm. if this is where we're going, then that's fine. And it essentially becomes, and it already is, it essentially becomes minor league NFL football. And it, and it really already is, right, at the end of the day, right? I mean, when you watch these games with the top 25 schools, you know, you already know that, you know, a big number of them are going to get drafted. Now, whether they'll make it into the NFL or not is, you know, remains to be seen. But a lot of them are going to get drafted. But I keep going back to this 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 thing that, that we always heard. And we always said to kids, look, you know, you want to play pro, that's great. But understand something. 98 or 99% of the kids that play college athletics never sniff pro sports, period. They're going to go on to do something else. It's a great dream. And even the guys that get drafted doesn't mean you're going to make it. How many, how many guys get drafted out of college and don't play in the NFL? They get cut in training camp. They're just not good enough because, you know, it's, it's a different level, ladies and gentlemen. So I don't know how it will I, – I, we know it's going to affect football. It already has. I mean, if you look at the, the, the college football playoff rankings, it's all about that, right? It's all about the, the Power 5 schools. So it's already happening, so we're just going to acknowledge it, and it just means that there's going to be more opportunities for kids to get paid, to get $30,000 a year from some trust fund. 
Still distasteful, but I get it. That's where we're at. You know, and I think the other part of this is I think that that by the NCAA is trying to keep Congress from regulating the NCAA. You know, in some ways they, you know, in some ways it would be good if there was a a law on the books regulating it. But on the other hand, as soon as you let the government into your business, you are screwed. So this may be a way for uh, them to avoid that. And by the way, Charlie Baker has said that these schools that are going to be in this new Division One tier, if this indeed happens, and there's no timetable for when it will or if it will, you know, if it'll happen. I suspect, I don't see how it won't. But there's no timetable laid out for this. But what is important is he said, look, here's the deal. You still have to be compliant with Title IX, right? You still have to follow the rules. You can't, this isn't going to be the Wild West where kids don't have to go to class and, you know, you know they're still going to have to follow the rules. They're going to have to still have to follow Title IX rules in terms of equal opportunities for male and female athletes. That all still has to happen. Thank God. Right? But at the end of the day, if this is what it's going to take to just move on and, 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 and stop some of this noise, then let's do it. Right? Let's just do it. But the fact now that, that we're looking at kids that commit to a school and then all of a sudden another school comes in and says, we can get you more money for the name, image, and likeness thing. And uh, so, you know, why don't you come here instead? And kids are decommitting from one school and going to another. We see it all the time. It becomes a bidding war as to who can throw the most money at a kid. It's been going on. So let's just, uh, you know, as Charlie Baker said, you know, let's just, let's just get this done. And, you know, and as other commissioners are saying, it, it, it's been going on for years, so let's just acknowledge it and 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 be done with it. So uh, again, no timeline. Um, I suspect it'll be you know it'll it'll take a little time because they're going to have to really lay out the framework, especially the way it regard it relates to the smaller schools. Right, Liberty is not in one of those Power Five conferences. James Madison is not in a Power Five conference. How how do these rules apply to them? Will they still have the opportunity to for select recruits? Would they have the opportunity to pay those kids? And if or does it mean they have to be in that new subdivision of Division One? And maybe that's where maybe that's where a school like Liberty wants to be. Maybe they'll say, you know what? Yeah, we don't have those kind of resources, but we want to play with the big boys. To, you know, and and will they have? It will a school that wants to do things selectively in terms of that have the ability to do that. But I don't think so for the following reason: in the letter that Charlie Baker sent out, he said that those schools in that new tier would be required to offer at least half their athletes. Half, thirty grand, up to thirty grand, or at least thirty grand a year, I should say. So, I don't. I think that that then precludes Liberty from saying we want to be in that because can they? I don't know how many student athletes they have, but you know, when you have a football team, you know, <laughs> that's a bunch, 
right? You got 100 kids on the football team, and then you add in all your other sports. And by the way, the other thing I, it, it doesn't spell out is if you have to give it to half your athletes, does it have to be split evenly? If Title IX is a factor, does it have to be split evenly between male and female athletes? That's going to be where the rubber meets the road here, and that's where the I think a lot of these tweaks are going to have to happen. Um, and and I'm not you know and he, and here's the thing I'm not even sure that that we need to do it for every sport, but that's the the proposal that's been made. Why don't we just do it for football? Because at the end of the day, that's where the disparity is. Right. I mean, at the end of the day, that's where that's where we're at. So it will be, you know, I look at a school like the University of Connecticut. University of Connecticut's budget is way up there. But they're not, you know, they're in the Big East, which doesn't have football. And so they're not even considered the Big East is the Big East isn't considered a power five conference. Now, it would be for basketball. But it's not for football because they don't have football. So how is that? You know, how does that relate to to school to conferences that don't have football? Does that automatically leave you know the Big East with uh, you know Georgetown and St. John's and UConn and yada yada in Providence? Does it leave them out of that? So we'll see. But uh, you know, there is no doubt that it is in some ways just acknowledging uh, what has already been going on. All right, uh, baseball. The Red Sox and the Yankees make a trade, and I this came through last night when I late last night about I think about ten o'clock, and I was I almost jumped out of my chair. The Red Sox send Alex Verdugo to the New York Yankees for three minor league pitchers: uh, right-handers uh, Richard Fitz, Greg Weisert, and Nicholas Judice. Um, at the end of the day it gets the Red Sox some more pitching depth in their minor league system. These names aren't names that are going to move the needle that much. There's, you know, a couple of these kids are, you know, have, show some promise. But at the end of the day, what this did for the Red Sox was uh, got rid of a problem. Alex Verdugo was suspended or benched twice this year by his manager, Alex Cora, for a lack of hustle, and showing up late. And and, and it was bad. It was, you know, look, uh, Alex Cora was visibly upset in August, the, the second time he had to do this for, for Dugo for showing up late. And even right before the end of the season, Verdugo was mouthing off about feeling like he was picked on. You know, poor baby. You know, you're getting paid millions of dollars to show up on time. There's no excuse for not showing up on time, right? Um, so there was no question by the end of the year that even though Verdugo has another year on, you know, before free agency, that there was no way the Red Sox were bringing him back. And add in the fact that late last year they brought up uh, Sedan Rafaela, uh, William Rebreu, the way that Jaron Duran uh, became a big factor for the Red Sox last year. All of a sudden, the outfield became very crowded. So this does two things. It clears the deck for some of these young kids, you know, maybe to earn a spot on the roster, and it gets rid of a distraction in that clubhouse. And look, Verdugo 
is a very, very good outfielder. He was second in the gold glove voting for American League right fielders this year. He has the potential to have a big bat. Started out great last year, but uh, tailed off by the end of the year. He was hitting 264. Over his four years with the Red Sox, he hit 281. He was the cornerstone piece of the trade the Red Sox made for Mookie Betts. We already know that the Dodgers won that trade. Uh, you know, I mean, it's not close. So, but this had to happen. Now, of course, now you look at it and you say, and here's the thing. Now he's going to be on a team that you are going to play 13 times. It means that Aaron Judge is in center field. Alex Verdugo is in right. They're still trying to get Juan Soto. If they put get Juan Soto and put him in left field, holy crap. You know, and – and I and I saw this. I think Peter Abraham wrote about this this morning in the Globe. He may mention. Look, here's here's the thing. There's a possibility when he goes to that Yankee clubhouse. That Yankee clubhouse is run by Aaron Judge, right? The Red Sox didn't have a vocal leader with Xander Bogarts gone. And by the way, most of the problems that happened with Verdugo happened after Bogarts left. Right, they all happened this year. This is when things went downhill because you know uh, Rafi Devers signed that big contract, but Rafi Devers is not a vocal leader. That's he's not, you know, he's not the clubhouse presence. I mean, Trevor Story is probably going to be that for the Red Sox this year, but Bogey had control of that clubhouse. With him gone, that's where the problems popped up with Verdugo this year. Well, now he's in New York with Aaron Judge. Aaron Judge is going to rule that clubhouse and and and. If Alex Verdugo gets with the program and he's already going to be motivated because he's got free agency coming up at the end of the year, he's already going to be motivated to have a big year. You have potentially screwed yourself by putting a gold glove caliber right fielder or, you know, in, into the Yankee lineup who's motivated, you know, for a contract and to, you know, flip the middle finger at Red Sox manager. But – he could also be a train wreck in New York. You, you know, it could go either way, I guess. But, but you know, that's why these teams don't usually make trades and why you don't generally see trades between teams in the same division. This is, this is only the seventh trade between these two franchises in the last 50 years. Probably the last big trade between these two teams came in 1986. When Mike, when the Red Sox sent Mike Easler to New York to get and got Don Baylor back, that was it. You know, I mean, so it just doesn't happen. We we've seen Red Sox players sign as free agents with the Yankees, right? We've seen Wade Boggs do it. We saw Johnny Damon do it. We saw Jacoby Ellsbury do it. Uh, you know, so we've seen that. But to actually make a trade, very very rare. Uh, and who did the Red Sox get back? Um, the top guy they got back is this kid by uh, Richard Fitz. He's 24 years old, uh, first round draft pick out of Auburn, but he's been hurt. Um, and he's okay. Mid nineties fastball, uh, pitch in double a last year, went 11 and five with a three, four, eight. Uh, the good news is his strikeout to walk ratio is pretty good. Uh, you like that. Um, 
but he doesn't have overpowering stuff. Matter of fact, he's, his other pitch is a slider and a changeup. Eh, you know, the, the scouts say, eh, it's average. Um, but the fact that he throws strikes is huge. Red Sox had problems with that. Uh, the kid Weezert was an 18th round pick back in 2016. He's 28 years old. Uh, you know, again, just he's going to be a depth piece. The guy that maybe is the most intriguing is uh, this kid Nicholas Judice. He's only 22. Uh, he went in the, this last draft, eighth round, um, out of Louisiana Monroe. He's a big kid, 6'8". Uh, throws in the mid-90s. Um, you know, tall, lanky kid. So, you know, maybe and, – and he relieved most, mostly through college, so he's got an opportunity perhaps uh, to be a surprise piece in this trade. But at the end of the day, the Red Sox had no choice. Alex Verdugo had to go. He sealed his fate this year by not hustling in a game. And as a guy who watched every damn Red Sox game I could, um, you know, I saw that at times. You know, and then showing up late to, you know, the clubhouse in August when the team is, you know, uh, heading south and you need everybody to rally around and he's like a rat jumping off a sinking ship and didn't take it well when he got benched and pouted about it and then mouthed off about it at the end of the season. There was no question this is what the Red Sox had to do. It's 33 minutes past the hour. We're going to take a break. We're back in a minute. You're listening to The Wake Up Call on Sports Country. 36 minutes past the hour. Welcome back to The Wake Up Call. Hey, some breaking news just came down. Norman Lear uh, passed away uh, this morning, uh, actually yesterday, uh, yesterday evening. Uh, he was 101 years old. It's another one of those where uh, you're sad, but it's hard to be sad for a guy that had a 101-year run. I mean, I, again, sign me up for that tomorrow. But uh, the producer who was behind some of the most iconic shows in television history, all in the family, uh, the Jeffersons, uh, Sanford and Son, uh, Maud, Good Time. I mean, he had hit after hit after hit, all in the family to this day. One of my favorite all-time shows, Archie Bunker, one of the great characters in the history of television, a show that dealt with a bigotry. You know, I mean, uh, uh, you know, Archie Bunker, one of the biggest bigots uh, and small-minded people in television history. But Norman Lear, you know, in, at a time when uh, you know the, the and and. Actually, our race problems haven't changed all that much, right, uh, here in 2023. But it's something that uh, Norman Lear faced uh, head on. I'll never forget one of the greatest, one of the greatest moments in uh, that show. Sammy Davis Jr. was on there as a guest uh, star and uh, putting a kissing Archie Bunker. Oh, my God. It was in the, the look on uh, Carol O'Connor's face as Archie Bunker was just classic. But... 101 years old. Look, he kept working uh, right up to the end. I mean, it's pretty amazing when you think about it. Uh, what a life, and uh, 101 years old. So anyway, I just wanted to take a minute to uh, uh, to acknowledge uh, the passing of uh, one of the great uh, tele- television producers of all time. Um, so talked about the Red Sox trade, which is, you know, noteworthy. But the other issue for the Red Sox, obviously, is what are they going to do in free agency, they need pitching, right? I mean, uh, 
the Verdugo thing cleared some space in the outfield for one of these young kids, or if they want to go out and try to pursue a guy like Cody Bellinger or you know whatever somebody else for the outfield, or whether they want to try to trade for Juan Soto, although you don't really hear them involved in that sweepstakes as much as say the Yankees are. Um, but you know they've got to get they've got to get some pitching somewhere. Where's it going to come from? Well, right now, unfortunately, the world is waiting to see what happens with Shohei Otani. They want because Shohei Otani is going to set the bar for what contracts are going to look like, and 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 which I'm not sure is fair, considering that he both pitches and hits. Um, although he's not going to be able to pitch in 2024 because of the, the the Tommy John surgery, but it's going to be interesting to see. And I think that's what people are waiting for. And then there's this kid uh, Yamato coming out of. Uh, or Yamamoto coming out of uh, Japan. People think that his contract may be upwards of $300 million. The Red Sox are said to be really hot on trying to get him, as are the Yankees and anybody else that you know that has money. Um, but outside of that, what do the Red Sox do? I mean, we've already seen uh, you know guys like uh, Lance Lynn signing uh, with St. Louis, um, you know, but there's – a lot of mid-level guys out there. There's no big names. I mean, who are the big names? You know, uh, Blake Snell. You know, the problem with Snell and and is is that the new general manager Craig Breslow, who was a major league pitcher, one of the things he's talked about is that they need to throw strikes. They need to get swings and misses. They need to limit walks, and they need to be able to manage hard contact. Well, Blake Snell is not that guy because, look, he only works. You're lucky if you get five innings out of him. I think he averaged five and a third innings last year. Um, He only pitches in the strike zone 40% of the time, right? He's a guy who nibbles, right? That's not what the Red Sox need, right? I don't, I just, I don't see him as being a fit for the Red Sox. Uh, intriguing guy that's out there, Brandon Woodruff. The problem is Brandon Woodruff just had shoulder surgery. He's not going to be able to pitch in 2024. But he's a guy that has swing and miss stuff and would fit right in there. But can the Red Sox afford to wait, you know, for him to get better? You know, it seems to me for the Red Sox, it's Yamamoto or bust. You know, there's been some talk of them trying to swing a deal with Chicago to get Dylan Cease, that would be awesome. Lucas Giolito's name's been thrown out there, but Lucas Giolito the last couple of years has stunk. He's fallen off a cliff. Now, it doesn't mean he can't be fixed. Uh, another name that's been thrown out there, and this one scares me, it was a guy like Sean Manaya. Um, You know, Manaya finished the year strong last year, but he's a guy that bounced back and forth from the bullpen uh, with the Giants last year. Um, but Red Sox pitching coach Andrew Bailey had him when he was in San Francisco. His last four starts, 2-2-5 ERA and an 18-2 strikeout-to-walk ratio. Those are good numbers, but it was four starts at the end of the year when you're not in it anymore. And it's not the pressure cooker that Boston is. The problem that I see with a guy like Manaya is the following. He has pitched in Oakland, in San Diego, and in San Francisco. Three about as laid-back places as you can possibly pitch. 
if he came to Boston, his head might explode. Now, he pitched in Boston, but he hasn't had to deal with the daily uh, scrutiny that you get in Boston from the fans and the media. I'm not sure he's got the makeup for that. Now, maybe he does, but his history playing in San Diego, Oakland, and San Francisco would tell you that it would be culture shock coming there. So I don't know who else is out there. I mean, do you you try to bring Paxton back? Paxton looked pretty good at the start of the year, but then, you know, he wore down. But then again, he hadn't pitched much in the previous couple of years, so maybe you build him back up. I don't know. But I think it's Yamamoto or bust. And if it's going to take $300 million, the ownership group is going to have to hold its nose, give them the $300 million, and pray to God that all the scouts are right and that all the stuff you have seen on film is legit and he can translate that into Major League Baseball. It doesn't always work with Japanese players coming over to the United States. But this kid truly does look like he's special. Um, and you're just going to – look, they've got plenty of money to spend. They just And they just cleared up another $9 million by not having to pay uh, what uh, Alex Verdugo was probably going to get in arbitration this year. So, you know, look, uh, you're just going to have to do it. You know, and if it's, if it's uh, you know – Seven, eight years and $300 million. It's a lot of money. But the Red Sox ownership has, with the exception of Steve Cohen, who owns the Mets, have as much money as anybody in Major League Baseball. And uh, it's time that they started spending it. Uh, A couple other baseball notes. Uh, The Houston Astros signed Victor Caratini to a two-year $12 million contract yesterday. That probably... Uh, assures that Martin Maldonado will not be heading back to Houston. Uh, he's 37 years old. He's actually been linked to the Red Sox. There's been some talk about maybe bringing him in there um, as a backup option uh, to Connor Wong. Great defensive catcher. Can't hit a lick. He's got some power, but he can't hit 200. I mean, so I'm not, you know. Uh, but if you don't need him to start every day, he could be a good option for the Red Sox. Um, but the uh, starting catcher in Houston this year will be Einer Diaz, and then Caratini will back him up. Marco Gonzalez, who just got traded from the San Francisco, or I mean, excuse me, from the Seattle Mariners to uh, the Atlanta Braves, was an Atlanta Brave for two days. He just got traded to the Pittsburgh Pirates, and he's got to be going, oh, my God, I've just been sent to baseball purgatory. I'm not going to call it baseball hell because Pittsburgh's a nice city. But he's been sent to baseball purgatory. Uh, and by the way, he's owed $12 million for 2024. That's a big salary for the Pittsburgh Pirates, right? $12 million a year? That's a lot of money. Uh, but the Braves uh, sent him uh, to the Pirates for a player to be named later. So it tells me that really what Atlanta wanted uh, was getting the young outfielder, uh, Jared Kelnick and uh, Evan White. And uh, that uh, Gonzalez was a throw-in, and so they have just turned around and moved him to the Pittsburgh Pirates. Uh, interesting, Mike Schilt, the new owner or the new manager, I should say, of the San Diego Padres, has a meeting scheduled with Juan Soto coming up uh, here in about a week. Um, he's going to go down to Miami and meet him down there. That should be an interesting meeting, considering that uh, everything you hear is that the Padres are willing to trade him. Look, their owner just died. They spent a fortune last year 
it didn't work, right? You've got uh, Manny Machado coming up on, uh, you know, probably the, his last year with San Diego. Soto becomes a free agent at the end of this year. Um, you know, Bogarts wasn't able to replicate the success he had in Boston with the Padres. They've got Blake Snell, who is going to probably leave them in free agency. I mean, that team is in flux right now. And with the ownership moving to, I would assume, uh, the family, unless they decide to sell, there's going to you know, look, that's a big nut. He was probably going to make $33 million a year in arbitration this year before he becomes a free agent. Uh, so you would have to think they're going to move him. But Mike Schilt's going down there to meet with him. Then he said he's also going down to meet with the rest of the uh, guys like Tatis and, and Bogarts, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, uh, it'll be interesting. Maybe by the time his meeting is set up with uh, Juan Soto, he may no longer be uh, a San Diego Padre. They had the draft lottery in Major League Baseball last night. The Cleveland Guardians, who had a 2% chance, 2%. They had the 22nd best record, so there were eight other teams that had worse records uh, than the Guardians, but the Guardians end up with the number one pick. It's the first time since the uh, the draft was instituted in 1965 that they will have the number one pick. They've had the number five pick uh, five times. Excuse me, the number two pick five times. Uh, the last time that happened was back in 1992, and they took Paul Shuey. Uh, so they'll have the number one pick. Um, Washington was actually – their numbers actually came up, but they were ineligible to pick in the top six uh, because the CBA states that a team that pays into uh, the luxury tax can't have a lottery pick in back-to-back years. Uh, so uh, the Nationals uh, will be the number two pick uh, coming up or excuse me, number seven pick, Cincinnati is going to pick second, followed by uh, Colorado, Oakland, and the Chicago White Sox. The Red Sox, by the way, picked 12th in that draft. Uh, one other baseball note. This is cool. They're going to have a East-West Classic uh, to honor the Negro Leagues. It's going to be at Cooperstown um, in uh, May. And it's going to be uh, featuring a bunch of retired players. C.C. Sabathia is actually going to get back on the mound. He says, he said, uh, by the end of his career, he says his shoulder was all torn up. He couldn't throw a baseball. He said, but he's rehabbing to come back and pitch an inning in the game. He's 43 years old. Uh, Ken Griffey Jr., Ozzie Smith are going to manage the uh, two teams. Uh, guys like uh, Jerry and Scott Harrison are going to play in it. Ryan Howard, Prince Fielder, David Price, uh, Curtis Granderson, Dontrell Willis, Adam Jones, a bunch of guys. Um, uh, are going to, to uh, honor the Negro Leagues. 37 of the 343 people in the Hall of Fame um, had their careers uh, mostly or entirely in the Negro Leagues, including guys like uh, Buck O'Neill, Satchel Page, Cool Papa Bell, uh, Josh Gibson. Uh, so they're going to do this uh, at the Hall of Fame uh, in, in May. It's going to be pretty cool. So uh, that's uh, that's going to be fun to watch. It's 50 minutes past the hour. We've got to take one more break. We're back in a minute. You're listening to The Wake Up Call on Sports Country. It is 52 minutes past the hour. Welcome back to the wake-up call here on a Wednesday morning on the sixth day of December. I watched uh, the second half of this game last night. UConn men's basketball beats North Carolina uh, rather handily last night, 87-76. to 76. They pulled away. Uh, they had an 18-6 to 6 run. 
uh, midway through the second half, and uh, it stayed double digits for most of the game after that. Um, strong performance by the Huskies coming back after that tough loss to Kansas. Look, they could have beaten uh, Kansas in Kansas the other day. Uh, they had a, a big lead and um, uh, three straight threes by Kansas late in that game kind of sealed their fate. But uh, uh, UConn now 8-1, and one, shot 51% from the field last night. Um, a strong game. Cam Spencer, 23 points last night. Um, looked really good. Solomon Bell, uh, the freshman, uh, his first big game, uh, 13 points, uh, made three for six from three-point range. Something UConn has not done this well, by the way, is shoot threes. Uh, they're really struggling from three-point range. Uh, Tristan Newton, uh, 14 points, five assists, five rebounds. Um, Donovan Klingon, the big kid, the seven-footer, got in foul trouble, uh, had eight points and four rebounds, only played 19 minutes because of the foul trouble. And he still he doesn't look right. He just doesn't look right. He's still trying to come back from that foot injury. Um, and, and, look, it's still early in the season, nine games in. But And I said this the other day, and I'm going to say it again. He needs to come back. He does not need to go to the NBA after this year. He's not ready. He is not ready. Um, you know, he can uh, uh, he can do – he has some skills, but he is just way too raw. You know, and I think he would get eaten alive in the NBA right now. He needs to come back for another year. He needs to come back, play at least your junior year, then go. But, uh, you know, unless something uh, – unless he – suddenly uh, blossoms late in this season. He just does not look NBA-ready to me. Does not at all. Uh, college football news. The uh, transfer portal opened up and uh, a new record for number of players hitting the portal and a couple of big names. Uh, and this was Kyle McCord from Ohio State uh, had a hell of a year for Ohio State, and he's going to transfer. I mean, that is nuts, right? Threw for 3,000 yards, 24 touchdowns, six picks. Had a great year. Now, two of his six picks were in one game. It was in the loss to Michigan. But, I mean, wow. The kid's a junior, and he's going to transfer. And, by the way, they're scheduled to play in the Cotton Bowl. And Ryan Day, the Ohio State coach, says he has not made a determination what he's going to do there when they go to play Missouri uh, in the Cotton Bowl on December the 29th. Uh, I think if you're Ryan Day, I think you got to play the kid. I mean, look, you've had a great year. You lost that game to Michigan. You want to end the note on a high note, especially when it comes time for recruiting. But, you, you, know, um, you know, look, they've got Devin Brown there, but uh, McCord beat him out in preseason. And I just uh, absolutely shocked that he's going to transfer. I mean, he, why? Where are you going to go? Seriously, where are you going to go? You're playing in one of the premier schools in the country. Why are you transferring? Unless there's something going on behind the scenes that we don't know, it makes no sense to me. Uh, Another surprise, uh, Dylan Gabriel, quarterback from Oklahoma. He's already transferred once. He transferred from UCF uh, to Oklahoma. Now, you know, look, uh, and they beat Texas this year. Um, this is a kid that ranks in the top 10 in Division One history in yards passing and passing touchdowns. Now, their offensive coordinator just left to become the head coach at Mississippi State. Does that mean he's going to transfer and go to Mississippi State? I mean, I don't, I don't get it. I don't get it. But 
Uh, we shall see. Now they still now this the, the players that enter the portal can still go back to their current schools if they so choose. Uh, the portal is going to be uh, open until January second, but uh, that one th- those two were complete shockers to me. Um, other news: Caleb Williams, the quarterback from USC, has decided he is going to skip the Holiday Bowl. There was some speculation that he might not come out and enter the pros, enter uh, the NFL draft this year. Well, he's skipping the Holiday Bowl for USC, so that tells me he's getting drafted. He's gonna he's gonna declare for the draft. Uh, I mean, it's just uh, you know, uh, why else would you do that? Uh, so. Uh, uh, you know, look, USC, uh, a lot of promise. They really faded late in the season. They are going to play Louisville in the uh, Holiday Bowl. That's uh, December the 27th, but we'll be without Caleb Williams. That is going to do it for us here this morning. We'll be back tomorrow with another edition of the Wake Up Call. We are scheduled to have uh, our friend Dan Zampano uh, with us tomorrow morning. I'm uh, looking forward to that, and we can talk about that scintillating Pittsburgh Steelers New England Patriot game coming up on Thursday Night Football. I know we all can't wait for that. That might be a 6-3 final. Um, we leave you this morning with some music from Paul McCartney and Wings. Why? Well, because uh, Denny Lane died uh, yesterday at the age of 79. You may not know that name, but Denny Lane was one of the founding members of the Moody Blues. Uh, their first hit was called Go Now. It was a kind of a pop hit. Um, he was only 20 years old when they founded the Moody Blues. Uh, he stayed with them for three years, ended up leaving. He was replaced by Justin Hayward, and then the Moody Blues, of course, took off after that. Uh, but he was also uh, the uh, sidekick for Paul McCartney in Wings uh, when Wings was founded right after a year after the Beatles uh, broke up. Uh, Denny Lane joined Paul McCartney and stayed with, even though the, the personnel for Wings changed over the years, uh, he stayed there in the front with uh, Paul McCartney and his wife, Linda. Uh, they were the only ones who stayed with that group throughout. And uh, so uh, going to remember Denny Lane this morning, passed away from uh, lung disease at the age of 79. Here's Paul McCartney, Wings, and Denny Lane. It's called Silly Love Songs. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to The Wake Up Call on Sports Country.